We had a wonderful evening last night where we uh, had uh, an ordination for um, Janice Sharp, Brent Sharp, and Paul Pano. And uh, so they are officially priests in our context. Stand up, you guys. Let's give them. So <clears throat> you can call them Father Brent, Father Paul, Reverend Janice, just to make them uncomfortable until it feels okay, then you don't have to do that, but it is totally appropriate to do that. That gospel is so wonderful. You know, and normally we teach out of the lectionary and teach from the gospel. Uh, this month we're teaching through the Apostles' Creed, so we're still wanting to hear it, but we're uh, going in a little different direction. The creed for us that we say week in and week out, and we do the shorter version, the Apostles' Creed, uh, Nicene Creed, is uh, one that's a little fatter and, and uh, in some ways deeply appropriate. But uh, we thought we'd keep it skinny for a bit. And this particular creed, uh, it begins, we, it, it really gives us, it gives us the story that gives shape to our faith. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. It begins, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then the next segment is the longest part of the creed. It's devoted to Jesus. We covered it last week. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come back, come again to judge the living and the dead. And then it claims, and this is what we're talking about today, we believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Here the creed signals that the Holy Spirit is to be thought of in the same manner as the Father and the Son. It may seem odd to us, but the New Testament does not speak precisely or comprehensively about the Trinity. Early theologians worked carefully to try to make sense of the sacred text in regard to God in three persons. But we have the advantage of looking backwards from our place to their conclusions about those texts and about what the Spirit was saying those many centuries ago. And when we read the New Testament, it seems like it's so clear, but it really isn't. Um, the first four creeds of the church, the Apostles, the Nicene, the Chalcedon, uh, Chalcedonian, and the Athanasian Creed, they all try to run at how to understand God in three persons. But in the end, there's, this still, there's still this mystery, this uh, sort of scratching of our heads. What's going on in God? Some of what he reveals, some of what God reveals to us seems contradictory. Some of what God reveals to us seems unclear, but it is what God revealed to us, and so we remain faithful to it. We moderns, though, don't like mystery that much. Um, we're the offspring of a culture that valued reason and scientific method that's all about finding out what's really going on, and there is no such thing as mystery. In fact, mystery is just an evidence of laziness, right? But, you know, the scientific mind's really a great gift. Imagine a world without antibiotics or without modern dentistry. Some sitting in this room, many of us sitting in this room, would be in the grave, if it weren't for the success of science in modernity. So thank God for science, right? 
That being said, a scientific mind is always reductionist. It's always trying to break everything down into the most basic parts in an attempt to understand what seems complex. We bring that into faith, or try to. Um, that kind of mind helps in a lot of places, but it doesn't work in all areas of life. I mean, try to use a reasoning scientific mind to understand your spouse. <laughs> Good luck. I mean, I've been dating Gil Gunger for about 44 years. And uh, I try to dissect her, and even while she's under the microscope, she morphs right in front of me. <laughs> it's a mystery to me. I've been married to at least 15 different women in the same body. Nor can you dissect, you married about 50 different men, so it's not, <laughs> nor can you dissect the human experience to fully understand it. I mean, you are more than all the things that have happened to you. You're, you're more than the sum of your education. You're more than your Enneagram number. You're greater than the sum of your parts, right? You are more. And if you, being the created, still carry an aura of mystery at the end of the day, how much more God, the uncreated? <laughs> I mean, even the term uncreated is a mind twister. What does that even mean? <laughs> uncreated God, right? There's mystery there. The early Christian theologians reflected on Scripture, they reflected on the experience of the church, and they landed on what we read in the Creed. It's not absolutely clear, but it's as clear as we can get. And so we say we believe it. There's three things I want to point out here about the Holy Spirit that I think will be helpful for us whenever we articulate the Creed. The first is, we do know that the early church believed the Holy Spirit was the source of power for Christian living that somehow they knew that Christianity wasn't just the result of human effort or commitment or promise, that it was something that needed more, that human beings needed more than themselves and their energies to pull off Christianity. They believed the Holy Spirit was indeed a person, one of the persons in God, but also the person in God who endued the followers of Jesus with power, a kind of power that was shot into Jesus as he came out of the grave in resurrection. Somehow when a human being is touched by the Spirit, there's a transformation. Their capacity for loving grows. Their capacity for knowing and understanding expands. This is described way back in the Psalms and talking about the Spirit's work in the life of a person. And the psalmist writes, Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart. Whenever God engages with you, there's a creation. He's not done creating. He's always creating. He's a creator. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, help me pull this off, this thing called faith. Do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me because then I really am in the land of the suck. The early Christians believed that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead was at work in their daily lives and they anticipated it. 
It's one of the reasons when whole segments of the body of Christ, when they greet each other, they'll say, he has risen. And they respond, he has risen indeed. What are they tapping into? That resurrection power is available. It is what it will make me loving and kind when I'd rather be unloving and mean. That there's something beyond me, something extra. Um, they knew, well, let me read the text. And if the spirit of him, this is Romans 8, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You've got to read a text like that and ask, what if it's true? I mean, what if the Holy Spirit lives in me and am I cultivating an awareness or is it in vain? God actually speaks in Corinthians that sometimes the grace of God is received by us in vain. In other words, it has no effect. I think sometimes just because we just don't stop to think, what if it's true? Or we think if it were true, things would just happen. Not understanding God is the God who loves to tuck away and be real quiet until we seek him. That's why it tells us, seek the Lord. Why? Because he loves to hide. Right? He loves to tuck away into your life. The question is, faith is you believe that he is. And they believe that he's there enough that you actually seek him. And if you actually seek him, he pops out in different ways at different times. These believers, these early believers particularly that wrote this creed, they knew the stories of the Spirit through the Jewish narrative. These stories of how the Spirit would animate human beings, the prophets, the priests, the kings, and these Old Testament stories revealed that transformation would happen when the Spirit fell on human beings. <laughs> I mean, just think of stories like Samson. These are crazy stories. This is in Judges. As Samson approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. And these ropes on his arms that they had tied became like charred flax, like something burned away. And the bindings that they had bound him with dropped from his hands. And finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. <laughs> I don't know if this was hyperbole or not, but, but you, you, what happens is it gets into the cultural memory of the Jewish people and the early Christians that when the Spirit of the Lord comes, things are different. When the Spirit of the Lord comes, humans do stuff that humans can't usually do. That's what they realized. So they said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. First Kings says another story. The seventh time this servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand was rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, who was a bad king, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds and the wind rose and a heavy rain came on and Ahab blitzed off, rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord, which is synonymous for the spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah. So he's just standing there, and all of a sudden he tucks his cloak in his belt. You know, they used to run in these little dress things. He tucked his cloak in his belt, started taking off, running, <laughs> and beat Ahab. 
He outran the horse and the chariot. Something caught on that boy. He was doing something most people can't do. Outrun horses. <laughs> so I love to believe this kind of stuff. The Spirit, the point is, the Spirit was always seen as the glory of God. Or God on parade. That God would appear. And the believers knew that being a Christian wasn't just about believing in doctrines or voting a certain way or fighting other people about their perspectives. But it was about living under the influence of a spirit, not the demonic, but the spirit of purity, the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 12, Jesus, looking at people, said, listen, if, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. What's he saying? He's actually claiming, whatever I do, if it's by the Spirit, the kingdom must come. Every time you and I yield to the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God breaks into our lives. The rule of God is seen. Sometimes that can be a radical change. Sometimes it's just a gentle thing. I remember when I first started hearing about trusting the Holy Spirit and asking him for help and not trying to just perform and be a daddy good, you know, a goody two-shoes. I remember I would come home from work uh, after working all day as a pastor in this first church I pastored and I did way too much stuff that I should have. But, you know, I'd come home and I'd feel like I'd been just pecked on all day. You know, we're Pastor Ed, Pastor Ed. Like I was an extra in the movie, The Birds. And, and I just, you know, just... And I, and I would pull in, and I think to myself, I do not want to be a good dad or a husband right now. I want to just go in, I want to turn on a show, and I want to pretend everybody just, uh, just shut up. And I just, I want to find the dog, just to give it a little bump, just a little, just a little <laughs> kick. You know, just because I want to be in control, right? And I remember pulling in, and I'm in this kind of nasty attitude, and I would stop, and i say, okay, Spirit of God, help me. I don't want to love, I don't want to be kind, I don't want to help Gail, and she wants help, she's been with these kids all day. But would, would, you, would you help me? That's it. I'd open the car and i start going in, and to my shock, over and over and over again, something would come up in me that I was a little kinder, a little more engaging, a little less freaked out. And I didn't do it all the time because I wouldn't remember all the time to do it, but whenever I did it, something more was there. And I remember thinking to myself, is this me? Or, is this you, Holy Spirit? And I remember at one point thinking, I don't think it's me or the Holy Spirit. I think it's us. That somehow there's this commingling of God in the human heart that we call Christianity. See, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper. Help for what? I think to live the Christian life. Help, the Spirit helps us say no to sin. The Spirit helps us say yes to doing right. The Spirit strengthens us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us love when we'd rather not. And I've often told God, God, you know, I, you know, I'd feel judgment for people and I'd just be honest with God. God, I love to judge people. I mean, I just, I can see it. I mean, it's so clear to me that I see what is going on here. Judge, 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 judge. So why don't, and, but I would feel that, you know, the sense I'm supposed to love people. I think, you know, why don't you love people? And I'll judge them. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's just, right? Just, I'm so much more adept at judging. 
But then you'd feel the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit. And somehow the Spirit, the Scripture says, has been given to us and the love of God's poured out in our hearts and there's some kind of a miracle that takes place when you call upon the name of the Lord. I remember a quick couple of stories. I remember <laughs> when I first heard about the Holy Spirit being a helper. And, you know, I, I pray for miracles to happen. I, I don't often see them, but I still pray for them. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could figure it out. I, I just know we're supposed to ask. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to seek. And sometimes we find Right? So it's good. So I remember this one particular time I was, had such a bad headache. I was visiting with this, uh, this elderly lady who had just lost her husband. And I had one of those headaches. This was way before I figured out what they were. It was kind of a migraine headache. And I used to take Tylenol. wouldn't do anything. Well, now I found like Excedrin with a little bit of um, caffeine in it. Shazam! Anyway. But I didn't have that. And I'm, and I'm talking with her. And I'm thinking I want, I'm spending some more time. We're in the middle of dinner. And my head is and I went into the restroom and I just, I was hurting so bad I didn't know if I, I was almost crying. And I put my head against the, the wall in the bathroom and I said, Holy Spirit, would you help me get healed here? Would you help me experience healing? And bam! The headache was completely gone. And I went, wow. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> right. Now, I wish I could tell you, I mean, I've, I've Prayed that way a hundred times and nothing happened. But that particular time, something happened and I sensed the prevailing presence of the Spirit. And I, I wish this was, you know, I wish God would, wasn't like the wind that moves wherever God moves. I wish we could lock this down because then I could sell you a series called Three Steps to a Miracle and <laughs> pay for my ministry. <laughs> but, but it just doesn't work that way. Sorry. <laughs> Another time I remember I was praying and, and I've always had that kind of a, not a I, I'm not a big evangelist guy because I, I kind of like people to like me and I don't want to start talking to them and make them uncomfortable so I've always had a hard time really sharing my faith openly. Now since, well I won't go into that because I've got to shut up, but when I remember when I first started praying about this and thinking about the Holy Spirit, that's what I'm saying. And I, I said, Holy Spirit, I was driving home one night. It was late, uh, about 1030 at night. It was on a Saturday night. I, was, I, was, um, uh, I had to do some visitation things, and I'm coming home. Uh, this is in Wisconsin, the first church I pastored in. I'm driving down the road. I said, Spirit of God, would you help me not be so shy with people that don't have faith? Would you help me find ways to articulate and connect with them that, aren't, that don't make them feel weird? And as I'm praying that, I'm driving by this little town, and I saw out of the corner of my eye this big sign that said, Party Till Dawn. I looked, you know, and my first thought was, oh, those silly kids. You know, what are they doing over there? <laughs> was in my mind. And I'm driving by, and there's bonfire, you know, all these cars are in there. And as I'm driving by, and then I came back to my prayer time, I felt like the Spirit said, go back. And I'm thinking, Where? I knew, go back to that party till dawn place and talk to them. So I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I literally started saying, this is the day, this is the, trying to get it out of my mind. 
And I got down the road about two miles, and sure enough, I couldn't push back. I turned around, pulled the car back in there, walked in, and all the music was blurring. And I get out, and I said, hey, uh, do you, uh, <clears throat> you guys mind if we turn down the music out here? I said, I, I, I want to talk to you. And they're kind of looking at me like I'm a man from Mars, right? So I pulled them together. I said, listen, I was just driving by. I just told them the truth. Just driving by, and I was kind of praying, and I felt like I should talk to you guys a little bit about Jesus. Oh, you know, they're kind of looking at me real crazy now. And then about five of the girls on the side start going, amen, mocking me. And I looked and said, thank you for the encouragement. So I shared maybe five minutes about, hey, you know, God really is alive and he loves you guys. It was just a simple little idea about God, you know, crossing a threshold of some sort in faith. And then I was trying to get out of there as quick as I can because I thought the police are going to pull up here and I'm going to be the only adult in this place and I'm going to jail. I mean, that's all I was thinking about while I was sharing my heart. So as soon as that thing got done, I started taking off, and all of a sudden, here comes this girl, and, I, and, I, and she says, excuse me, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to my car, yeah. She said, it's so cool that you were talking about God, and uh, you know, what's my next step? And I said, well, and I started to try to talk to her, and all of a sudden, here comes her boyfriend. I said, I, you know, we're just talking about God here. Because I don't. <laughs> and before the thing was done, as we started talking, there was about 12 of them that gathered around. And a lot of them just said, I want to somehow start becoming a follower of Jesus. Ten years later, they call me up. One of them called me up and said, I just want you to know we've tracked you down. There's still a bunch of us serving Jesus. Right? So now, my point is, is that I did something that actually had fruit. Um, but, it, but it was because of the Spirit. Now I don't pray like that anymore because I don't like doing that. <laughs> Here's my point. I think Christianity is an impossible gig to live out just with human strength. We have just about as much chance to do it well as we do to fly. And we all know only Superman can fly, right? I mean, do you remember this little piece from this movie? This is Lois Lane, I'll walk you through it. He says, you wanna go for a little flight? Oh, she's freaking out because she's not used to this. Yeah. It's a new experience for her. Hold on, this is three minutes.
This is based on a true story, by the way. Just <laughs> now she's getting more comfortable with it. Watch, she's kind of liking this. See? I can do this. Oh, yeah. Lois is flying. Mm-hmm. Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Drops like a stone. That's an altar call right there. Here, here, here's the point. Only Superman can fly. You lose touch, you drop like a stone. Only the Spirit can do Christianity. You lose touch, you drop like a stone. If you're falling, don't get mad at yourself. That's what you do. It's par. If you're not flying in love, in kindness, in graciousness, it's because you're trying to do this on your own. And I, you know, listen, you can go up on the top of the building and you can jump off. And for a moment or two, it'll feel like you're flying but it won't end well. That's what most of us do. We think God's calling us to try again. Don't be mad at yourself. Just admit you're an idiot. You can't fly and find the spout where the spirit comes out. All right, second thing, and I gotta hurry. The spirit, this is, this is a little more terse, not nearly as fun. The spirit leads us when we get outside the cultural imagination of the Bible, this is harder to see, so please just focus for a moment. Why the Spirit leads us when we get outside the cultural imagination of the Bible is because the Bible is an ancient book, and it has limitations. This slide shows you the cosmology of the ancient world. This is how they saw the universe. They saw the earth dry land is kind of this flat thing. And underneath it were waters. Then there's some space above the land that we call just the atmosphere. And then you see the waters above. You know why they thought the water were waters above? Because the sky is blue. So there had to be waters above it. Then at night when they could see through it, there was another area that's above the, the space, above these waters above, that this kind of is called the second heaven, though the space was called the first heaven. The second heaven, that's where the sun went around us, and the moon went around us, and the planets went around us. And then on the very edges of what that water's above, on the very top, there was a crystalline sphere that had the stars stuck in it. 
And that was the end of the second heaven. Then beyond that was the third heaven. That would have been God's domain. That was their cosmology. The whole of ancient texts were written with that in mind. They thought that was reality, right? So when you read certain texts, I mean, you, uh, like 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul writes, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, right? Whether, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and here inexpressible things, things that no person is permitted to tell. So this was their world. This is how the Bible was written. Paul writes of a third heaven. Is it God's word? Yes. Is it true? Yes. But it's still true within the context of a culture. Right? And so we have to become comfortable with realizing that this is a very ancient text. Um, along comes Copernicus in the late 1400s, and he says, uh, actually, the sun doesn't go around us. What? I mean, people didn't believe him. Why? Because our, even our eyes told us the sun goes around us. The moon goes around us, right? So, and then the church didn't believe him. Why? Because then if the sun is going around us, the Bible is wrong. Because the Bible speaks of the rising and the setting of the sun. And the church freaked out. But see, this is where the Holy Spirit helps us. Because the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of prophecy. The Spirit helps us navigate through spaces where sacred text is limited. If you're a fundamentalist or a literalist, you will not like this one bit. You'll want to take a plain reading of the Bible, use your common sense and decide that what's being said, you know, you can see it. And once you know, you defend that position and you just wrestle the text so you can find out how it can be taken literally. That's generally what happens. But that doesn't always work. And that's why we need not just the word, but the spirit of the word. This is John 16. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide us into truth. Sometimes we need the spirit to help us understand what's really going on. Our reasoning, our common sense doesn't always win the day. I mean, think of the church's shift on slavery. Like it or not, the Bible is pro-slavery. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. One of the church leaders in the mid-1800s claimed, quote, when the anti-slavery abolitionist tells me that slaveholding is a sin, in the simplicity of my faith in the Holy Scriptures, I point him to this sacred record, the Scriptures, and tell him in all candor, as my text tells him, that this teaching that there should be no slaves, blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine, end quote. What was happening in that day was that Christians advocating to keep slavery did not characterize uh, their opponents as simply looking at the scriptures in a different way. They actually said that they were not taking the Bible seriously and that they were threatening its veracity. Christians on the pro-slavery side urged followers to simply abide by the plain reading of biblical texts and not be complicated or nuanced by any argumentation of the mind. 
The slavery apologists could cite passage after passage after passage, stack them to support their case. They pointed out that slavery was practiced by the people of Israel, regulated by God, and that Jesus never said a word against slaveholding. Even the Apostle Paul instructs an escaped slave, Onesimus, to go back to the position of his slavery. It was the abolitionists, the ones who wanted to break up trade, uh, slave trade, who had a far more challenging task. And they applied to a broad sweep of scripture and to generalities regarding justice and love and common humanity. And they were saying, yes, that was present, but there's something more here. There's something greater here in the gospel text. It may not be literal to what you see, but, but, but this message of the gospel takes us beyond the culture in which it emerged. They pointed out texts like there are neither slave nor free to suggest that the writings of the apostles some, some, in some ways gave a hint of truth that would fly above and beyond their existing culture. Some of you that have taken philosophy, you remember Hegel, and Hegel was talking about this arc, how humanity is moving forward, and they don't realize it all the time, but they're moving towards something higher without even realizing it. That kind of idea, they began to say, we're moving somewhere else. They believed religion taught in Scripture was more than a letter, but a call to a new kind of life, full of love and justice and kindness for all of humanity. But many Bible-believing Christians didn't buy the argument and place the spirit of the law over against the letter of the law. In fact, there's a Connecticut Congregationalist pastor, Leonard Bacon, who put it this way, quote, He's pro-slavery. The evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will get rid of everything, end quote. What he was saying was, if you get rid of slavery in America, you might as well burn the Bible. But some Christians continued to be haunted by slavery. And they came to believe that they were being led by the Spirit to perceive the evil of it, even though it was accepted in the culture in which sacred text was written. And it took a number of years and a civil war to discover that we as God's people were wrong. That sometimes it's not about number of proof texts that we can line up or about the most simplistic literal reading of the Bible, but rather how we become aware of something deeper, some deep intrinsic sense of right and wrong, some movement of the Spirit that points us toward truth and to a better understanding of what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church and what the Scriptures are really saying. <laughs> this is the role of the Holy Ghost, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? Another struggle of the ancient text we're still facing in this day is that the Bible is thoroughly patriarchal, very male-driven. The ancient world was deeply disparaging of women. And if you're not careful when you're reading the text, you'll think that's God's heart. Not necessarily. I mean, Plato in the Republic, for instance, records Socrates as saying, this is giving you the tone of the ancient world, do you know anything at all practiced among mankind in which male sex is not just far better than the female? In Buddhism, a person is reborn a woman because of one's bad karma. Buddhist prayers include, quote, I pray that I may be reborn as a male in the future existence, end quote. The Muslim Quran labels a woman half a man. 
The ancient Jewish view of women was pretty pale. Jewish men would pray, Blessed be the God who has not created me as a heathen, a slave, or a woman. The Talmudic writings added, It would be better to burn the words of Torah, burn them, than to entrust them to a woman. The Gospel of Thomas, which is apocryphal, it's an ancient writing, but it was not considered sacred. But in that Gospel, which is reflective of the culture, Simon Peter is saying to Jesus, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus responds to Peter in this text and says, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Didn't that just make you smile somehow? <laughs> no. <laughs> And there are plenty of proof texts in the Bible that keep women all nicely wrapped up in male-dominated world. And there's nothing quite as brutal as bigotry all wrapped up in religious piety. But then there are hints in scriptures that this view is less than God intended. You have Jesus. When the Pharisees came to test him and they said, isn't it lawful for a man to divorce his wife from any and every reason? You know, we can do whatever with those women we want to do. And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, not just male? For this reason, he describes how a man would leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, that two become one flesh, you're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let people. Man, separate. This is one of the great texts of freedom for women. Saying, God made men, but you know what, girls? He made you too. See, this seems like a bow shot from Jesus that transcends the culture. The patriarchal culture in which those texts emerge to somewhere in the future. And Paul picks up, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See, many of us believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church today about recognizing the full human rights of women. Shandai. And then one more thing. There are issues surrounding the age of the universe. What if the earth is billions of years old? What if it turns out that there is some kind of evolution that really did occur to bring about this place? Do those things really conquer our faith? Do those things really render the Bible useless? I mean, many Bible-believing Christians are uncomfortable with the argument that the, that the spirit of the law can be over this letter of the law. They want plain reading of the text to win the day, period. They feel like if we got rid of that method of interpretation, that we have to get rid of everything. We just read a story of that about slavery. But I'm not convinced. The church and the Bible have survived the recalibrating of the confusion that Copernicus revealed. We now see that the verses about the sun going around the earth need not be taken literally. We survive the slavery shift from a literal understanding of the Bible. And understand the Bible isn't false because that's present there. We will survive the rights of women being fully enjoyed, which will be a shift from a literal understanding of the Bible. And I think we can survive whatever science discovers that may not jive with a literal understanding of the Bible. We don't have to be afraid of the Bible not being taken in every case literally. In a lot of ways, we don't. When the Bible says God is a rock, none of us are thinking literally God's a rock. Right? We actually pick and choose. 
Remember how Jesus dealt with sacred text. He said, you've heard it was said, let me recalibrate that. I mean, the obviously, this created a deep tension, and it should. But the church moves through time. We need to address reform. We need to be able to rethink what we see and understand. The Latin phrase is semper reformata. It means constantly reforming. But it demands a warning. There are deceiving spirits in the world. And we must be watchful and discerning when we deal with emerging issues that seem to contradict what we read plainly in the text. But we have the Holy Spirit. And over time, with, the commu- with a real commitment to Catholicity, I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, Catholicity means unity, agreement, accord. That if we have a commitment to unity and agreement, accord, to Catholicity, truth can be stepped back at and maybe looked at differently. The caveat is, it never comes through one voice. I mean, the safety of rethinking this stuff is in our Catholicity. We've got to do this together. Popular pastor in Tulsa years ago felt God showed him all people will be saved in the end. That the cross was, a, was that powerful. He believed in what's called ultimate reconciliation. This shows up in church fathers like Origen. Interestingly, the church never really officially condemned ultimate reconciliation. I guess because who would be against it if it were true? I mean, we just don't know, right? Uh, And I remember sitting down with him, this pastor, with lunch, and he said to me, you know, when my book comes out next year, it's going to change the whole face of Christianity within five years. And I remember looking at him and saying, no. (laughs) He said, well, what? What do you mean? He got a little angry. I said, that's not how God does stuff. God's not waiting for you to show up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, write a book that will change Christianity. If Christianity recalibrates an idea, it's going to be because we all were in it. And it's going to be over time, like at least one or two generations. This stuff, that we, the church rethinks positions, but we do it together with others, not separately, and it's usually done over a longer period of time. I don't know if you know this, but on October 31st, 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation signed the Joint Declaration of Doctrine of Justification, which is basically a milestone in Christian history because it says the Reformation's over. I discovered this in 2006. I'm in Rome. I'm talking to the guy that heads up the, the, uh, the office of, uh, of ecumenism, ecumenical stuff. And, he, and I heard about this, and I asked him, I said, what? You mean this actually happened? Yeah, we've signed it. You know, we agreed that Luther had it right when it came to justification. And so in, in, in tech, technically, the Reformation's over. So I'm going, well, well what's, what's next? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, what's the next step? You know, I mean, are you guys going to start getting together and pray together and talk and maybe merge some churches together? I mean, what's the next step? He goes, uh, uh, he said, you do understand that it's been about 500 years that we've been separated, right? You'll get that, yeah. And he said, you don't understand that there are families that are still in turmoil because one Lutheran kid married a Catholic kid and whole families haven't talked to each other for years and years and years. And it's just so deeply a rift in the culture, it's going to take us a while to be attentive to that, loving about that, and move towards each other. So, okay, so what are you thinking? I mean, how many years is this going to take? He goes, oh, I'm thinking 30 years. I'm an American. What the heck? Maybe we could do it in 20. <laughs> so, so he says this to me. He said, oh, we are so hopeful that in the next three 
to 500 years. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Some of these issues we're talking about take hundreds of years to sort through. And it is the patience and the kindness of God's people, an openness to the spirit of prophecy, the historical church, and the recognition that the culture in which the text was written does have limitations. We're not talking about helter-skelter here. We're not talking about silliness. We're talking about deep commitment to being open. But it is the Spirit's job to get us more like Jesus. Okay, And then I really do have to shut up. The last thing is we believe in the Holy Spirit. It's this point of the creed that we have been introduced to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is the mystery of God's own life, given and received and shared and never diminished abundant being. The Trinity shows us God as community. It doesn't make total sense to us or to those who framed out the creed. It didn't make total sense to them. But it is faithful to how we experience God and how God has been revealed to us. He, God, if we can call him he, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We can use our reasoning to make sense of it, if we can, but it's always mysterious. We begin to imagine God's inner life through the communi- this kind of idea of community, that life in, in God's self is shared, and somehow we get to share in it. God's creation is not some arbitrary gesture, but an intentional overflowing of energy that seeks habitation in the human life. There is a dance between us and God of expression and response. It is life-given so that life can grow in us. It's expressed in life-giving spirit who binds us together in love, which is a reflection of the love that's inside the Trinity. But notice, it's us. We are called into the life of the Trinity. We are called into community. We're not just called to individual identity. When I think about being made in the image of God, I tend to think, me, Ed Gunger. I'm made in the likeness and the image of God. But when we remember the communitarian terms and the Trinity life that's in God, we begin to look at being created in the image of God, not as me, but in more plural community terms, which is in tandem with the way God speaks of it in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. This is a very us-them-centered thing. This simply means that God's image in us is not found best in individual humans, but in humans as we relate to one another. The image of God is us more than me. Now we can see why the creed shifts here to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints because this is the place called us and that is where we go next time. Let's stand.